Hey everyone, it's Marquita Harris, work and money editor for Essence and host of Unbossed, a podcast for entrepreneurs, self-starters, and women who are about their business. We work hard to ensure that this podcast digs deep into the journeys of badasses that we admire. As Black women, it's crucial that we know our worth, especially in the workplace. This is why I'm beyond excited about today's special episode in honor of Black Women's Equal Pay Day. Black Women's Equal Pay Day marks the approximate date each year to which Black women must work to earn what non-Hispanic white males made the year before. August 13th, the 226th day of the year, is the date that we would need to work until the playing field is leveled. This is not okay. This is an average across all trades as well. It's not just some problem that's impacting the corporate world. It's never been as simple as leaning in for us. We've done that for years. Most of us have armed ourselves with the education, the experience, and the energy to break glass ceilings. And you know what? It's time that not only our paychecks, but our career growth and options reflect as much. What does it really mean to be paid what you're owed? A living wage shouldn't be debatable, and yet there is still a 38 cent wage gap for Black women. Being rewarded for your achievements shouldn't be reserved for only white men. Many of us end up leaving whole careers behind simply because we were refused our right to fair wages. Black business owners are also impacted. Black women are the most underfunded group when it comes to Silicon Valley. Black hourly employees are less likely to be promoted. This is something that, again, it impacts every industry at every level, whether you're a boss or an entry-level employee. On today's episode, I'm revisiting some snippets from past Unboss interviews that deal directly with Black women being hired, trained, paid, invested in, and just given the room to thrive in a variety of industries. From the top levels of the music business to venture capital funds to the New York Stock Exchange floor, I've had the privilege of being able to get candid with some amazing Black women in various stages of their career. Listen, this is not surface level fluff. These are real, honest accounts of the decisions and experiences that pave the way to truly equal pay. Check it out. The first voice you'll hear is Minda Hartz. Her book, The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table, was an answer to Facebook's COO, Sheryl Sandberg's book, lean in, which encouraged women to be assertive to move up to leadership roles. Like I mentioned earlier, Black women have been leaning in for years, yet we still remain invisible in the workplace. Minda wrote the memo to fill in the blanks that the lean in strategy left blank. Um, Can you tell me about the first time that you asked for more? Because I know that happens, you know, we are in those situations and you've, you know, you've written a book that encourage us, you know, it encourages us to ask for more. And what was it like when you first realized that you had to do that? It's, it's, it's still scary, right? I still sometimes shake uh, at the nerve of like, Minda, really do you have the audacity to ask for that? But I, what I found is that, uh, again, beware of feeling like you're not good enough to deserve it. We've done so many things. We've uh, have the, you know, the degrees, the certificates we've worked. So why shouldn't we have top dollar? And 
to your point, black women make 62 cents on a dollar. And we would have to work next year, this time, just to catch up to to white men who made uh, their money a previous year. So we have to work almost an additional year just to catch up with someone else. And so Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I'm not a fan of it. And so every time that I'm able to, I ask for more because that's the part of the equation that we can solve. And my first job, uh, my first corporate job, that's when I leaned into it. I didn't know it was called negotiation. Then I just knew that I had these bills. I had this apartment in Chicago and and I can't live off of just what, what that, that range was. So I asked for more, not really knowing, you know, the tools and the resources. But once I realized, oh, there's a range for a reason, you know, then I, I continue continuously push into that. Yeah. Did you um, seek out any advice or like from anyone else or were you kind of doing this, navigating it solo? At that time, I was navigating it solo because, uh, you know, first generation college student, first person in my family to go into corporate America. You know, at that time I was making, I was potentially going to make more money than both my parents combined. You know, even just the dollar figure alone, I realized, oh, uh, this is a lot, but it's still not enough. (laughs) And so I, uh, again, and then over time I was able to tap into mentors and, and sponsors who helped me finesse things a little bit more, but you definitely, you know, nobody's going to pat you on the shoulder and be like, Minda, don't you want to get more money? No, you get <laughs> good point. Very good point. Do you mind me asking at the time, how much were you making and how much did you end up making after you asked? Yeah. Um, so it was $28,000, uh, you know, new, newly in college or out of college. It's, you know, a lot depending on where, where you live. And mm-hmm. I ended up uh, getting $30,000. So int- I, I had to ask, obviously, I want to know as an interviewer, but personally, I too was uh, newly out of college in Chicago and looking for a job and 28 grand was my starting salary. And I remembered how hard, how happy I was to just make that for like a month or two. And then, <laughs> and then it was like, you know what, actually, okay, next job, we got to rethink how we go into this. And, you know, you live and you learn. And sometimes the lessons are hard. <laughs> I, what I want to know is this. I think so many of us have, you know, experienced and gone through the whole lean in era of things. And um, as we all know, black as Black women, we can't just lean in. We need a little bit more. We can't just lean in and work harder. As so many, you know, people and guides and motivational speakers will kind of say that don't necessarily speak to Black women. Um, So what advice do you have for Black women out there who really know that they, they need to get further, they need, they, they deserve more money um, and more opportunity? Yeah, well, let's talk about the facts. We make 62 cents on a dollar as Black women. White women make uh, 80 cents and Asian women make around 90. So that should be enough advice to remind you every time you like think, no, I can't ask for more. Think about the pay um, disparity in, in the pay right now with women, women in the workplace. And so the other thing I would say, do your research, you know, talk to people, ask what people are making, because the only way that we're going to close this gap is if we are fully engaged in the negotiation process. And the last thing I'll say is if you feel like you don't have the tools to do it alone, get a negotiation coach because, you know, every, every winner has a coach, right? So don't be afraid to invest in yourself in that way. Self-advocacy in any aspect of our lives is difficult, especially when it comes to your job. 
we all have to fight our own battles. Personally, it's always inspiring to hear accounts of the decisions that women have made in their careers because they believed in themselves, especially when no one else did. Juliette Jones, the executive vice president of urban promotions at Atlantic Records, told a story earlier in the season. In her early 20s, she made a risky decision that paid off in spades. Check it out. And technically, what was that exact first job? My first job was in the Mid-Atlantic Regional Promotions Manager. Okay. Okay. So what did that entail? (laughs) So what what that entailed, um, my territory was Raleigh, North Carolina to Boston. He hired me for that job because I was from D.C. So he knew that I knew the market and he hated it. Not D.C. personally, but he thinks the streets and everything are nuts. So (laughs) he hired me to do that. I moved to D.C. three weeks after I started Arista Records, which at the time was like my number one choice of working. I had been interning there. Three weeks later, Lionel offered me a job with twice the salary. Wow. But because I'd interned for him for so many years and he never offered me a job until Larry did, I didn't take it. I stayed with Larry because he believed in me. Wow. Okay. All right. That's I'm I'm I did get a little raise. I'm a little, out of it. I'm a little speech. I'm speechless. That's a pretty. So I'll tell you the numbers. That's a chest Thirty five thousand dollars. Okay. Yes. Tell me the numbers. Lionel offered me sixty five thousand dollars plus the legendary Arista bonus, which means I could have made ninety thousand dollars. Yeah. But I need you to understand that thirty five thousand dollars to me, me and my roommate moved to Virginia where we could never afford to live. And we felt flush. So I felt great with my thirty five thousand dollars. Yes. And but also just the fact that you knew it's like I interned for you for five you never years believed and in you me. didn't believe yeah. You didn't believe so I'm gonna in stay here. I'm gonna stay here. Larry, you give me a little more money, that's cool. That's so cool. three weeks in I got a raise to fifty thousand and okay. I was like, Oh my god, I'm rich. Yeah. I'm rich. What am I gonna do what with all this money? With, what am I gonna do? Where am I gonna go? Um so that's a but that's a pretty big that says something about who you were at the time. The f- I mean, I think a lot of people would go for them, you know, go for the money or, but you knew because you were in that experience and you dealt with him in that situation. You said, okay, I know I'm probably going to be valued more in this role. I mean, and I was like a little bitter. I yeah. felt like Lionel, I've interned for you for years. You know exactly what I'm capable of and you didn't want to take a chance on me. And I felt like Lionel came from a history of people who, didn't necessarily believe women should do promotion. And I think maybe some of that was at play with Mm -hmm. him. I don't know, but the fact that he would not take a chance on me when I had proven to him that I could do the work Mm -hmm. really bothered me. And as we've established now, I had a chip on my shoulder about respecting my intelligence. And what mattered to me the most was that Larry didn't care that he was the first and he didn't care that no one else had tried it out yet He was willing to take a chance on me and it meant everything to me. He was like, she can do it hired. I mean, I knew if I worked for someone who like didn't see anything in me and wasn't going to teach me and and develop me as an executive and help me to learn and grow because they kind of were like, you're cute. Stay there and get the records played till you're Mm. no good anymore. I just that wasn't my path. That story always makes me want to level up. Juliet is such a boss in that same vein. Lauren Simmons, a black woman who in 2016 was the youngest full-time trader on the New York Stock Exchange floor, offered a similar anecdote. 
with some advice from her mom and her own determination not to work for pennies, she challenged company culture and unwritten rules. During our conversation, Lauren shed some light on why the idea that starting from the bottom doesn't always mean you shouldn't make a living wage. I have so many questions for you, of course. What was the job interview like before you got onto the New York Stock Exchange? So the New York Stock Exchange, I mean, now things are a little different, um, which is crazy because it's only been three years since I have left. But prior to me coming to the trading floor, you got on the floor based off of who you know, which, yes, we, we know this to be a thing, but it very much very much is a thing on the trading floor. 99% of the people that work on the trading floor, their dad worked on the trading floor, their uncle, their their mother, somebody, blah, blah, blah. And that's how they got onto the floor. So everybody that was at Rosenblatt Securities knew each other outside of work um, and not because, you know, they had like a friendly work relationship, but because they knew each other prior. So, um, me coming onto the floor, I had actually, um, interviewed with a guy. He worked for another huge financial firm, financial institution in, in New York. You can imagine the, the big ones that are out there. And yeah. he told me flat out that, you know, his company wouldn't hire me, but he had a colleague that worked on the trading floor. And would I be interested in, um, an equity trader position? And of course I, you know, I didn't know much about the position. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, you know, as most people kind of don't, um, but I was like, this is an opportunity. So yeah, why not? Um, like there are no reasons why I, I couldn't be able to do this job. And so he introduced me to Gordon Charlotte, who worked for Rosenblatt Securities and Gordon said, come on to the trading floor. I came onto the trading floor. He gave me a tour. And then after the tour was over, he said, yeah, the job is yours if you want it. So there was no, there was no interview process, um, hadn't been an interview process. That wasn't something that, uh, that people did on the trading floor. Interesting. Um, so how much did you make and how old were you at the time when you got this job? So I started on the train floor as an intern making, I want to say $5 an hour, if that. Um, in, New York City. <laughs> in New York City. And um, just very long story short, the two years that I was there, um, six months prior to me leaving, I basically, my mom, she works in HR. I won't say the company, but she works for huge firm, whatever. And she was saying, yeah, they're paying less than minimum wage. Like you need to talk to your boss, you know, do, do what you need to do, do what's necessary. And it wasn't necessarily targeted to just me. It was, I don't know, a rite of passage from what the other employers or what the other employees on the trading floor would say, like, oh, you're supposed to start from the bottom, which I agree, but then I don't because I think people should be worth their time. Um, but ultimately, I told them, you're not even paying me minimum wage. And they were able to hike it up to 23000 And that is how much I was making on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that, that reminds me um, of pretty much the magazine industry, at least when I was coming up. I think I got a mm -hmm. few years on you, but it was very much um, understood that you work a full-time internship and you're either, 
you're either not getting paid or you're maybe they'll cover your transit, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so often what that does is it makes it so these jobs are only available for, you know, people with money, people with a lot of privilege. So in a way it kind of, you know, I, I kind of, I do understand that. So, so you were making $23,000 a year. Um, and did you have any support from your family? Like how were you paying bills? Yeah. So fortunately for me, um, I, my grandparents, they lived up, live up North. They have always. And so I stayed with them rent free. They didn't require anything from me. They just wanted me to, you know, be able to find a job and do well. And I'm so glad that I had that support. I know I tour and I speak, you know, around the world and I tell people, you know, everybody can't be in that position to just, I think everybody can take a leap, of course, but I don't think everybody can just take a position where they're paying you pennies because the reality is, is most people do have bills and they do have um, rent and et cetera, et cetera. I was fortunate enough to not um, have that. And, you know, I do have to recognize that there is a little bit of privilege um, in that. But yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, do what, is right for you and what you feel is important. If you feel like struggling for two years is, <laughs> is, is worthy of your time. And like, you'll, you'll get a grand rate of return on that. Um, I think that's, you know, great. But if you don't, I totally understand that as well. Like I would never, you know, and I still like, we can go on a long soapbox on it, but yeah, like, I don't think interns should not be paid and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I do think people should be worth their time that they're putting in. Equal pay starts with unapologetically understanding your value. For some, this is a lesson that's learned even before adulthood. The impact of the wage gap starts with your first job. And in some cases, your first check. This is the case with Sherelle Dorsey, creator and founder of The Plug. After her first internship at Microsoft, she was determined to be paid what she was owed. Especially as Black women, when we're navigating our careers and we're working in different industries for different companies, there's, you know, there's not a lot of salary transparency. Plug is completely full time. So I can actually go back to like my first job out of college. Um, I had like little writing and PR things in, in, in college, you know, kind of on the side that I was building out. And so, you know, I was probably, I was paying enough to, I was making enough to pay like my rent and things like that. And, and that, you know, I had to work during college, so it helped me there. Um, and even when I was interning, which I know this has changed drastically, people will tell you to get a free internship. And I was like, look, I don't have that luxury. So, you yeah, know, parish was like y'all have to pay me like, you want me to come here you got to pay me I was the only intern getting paid and wow. I want to say I was making like not, nothing crazy like maybe like 12 to 15 dollars an hour but I, no. I literally negotiated and said if you want me here you're gonna have to pay me and I used to bring my laptop to help fill orders and things like that so I also proved to them like I can be of greater value to you all and that's why you got to pay me yeah. so <laughs> so I, I finessed the check out of well, that also like I'm gonna I mean I feel like this that has to be related to the confidence that you built early on. Like you've been getting paid for your labor since, since what, 12 years old? Yeah. You know, so this, little, so this little 12 or $15 an hour, it's like, of course you're, you're going to pay me that or yeah. I'll just get the opportunity. Absolutely. That's, that's such an important mentality to have because I think a lot of times 
because we hear like, oh, you know, your first job or whatever will be an unpaid internship. And we end up being conditioned to believe that's our only option. So you kind of, it, I love hearing that. You kind of went in and, you know, you were the only person getting paid. I didn't play that. You know, I got spoiled at Microsoft because, you know, it. we were getting paid, you know, 12, yeah. 13 an hour. I was at, I was 14 in my Microsoft job with an office and a desk. So I was like, I don't understand this world where you all don't pay me for my work, but this is not how I, this is not where I'm from. This is not, <laughs> not where I'm from. Listen, I <laughs> love it. See? I told you this episode would be full of inspo. Okay, now we've got some inspiring words about self-advocacy at the start of a career. We've also heard some gems about founding a company in the middle of your career, but what about those who have been called to the investor side? What stats do Black women need to be mindful of, and what wisdom do we need if we're looking to fund our own businesses? Better yet, how do Black women become the investors? Well, let's check into this conversation I had with Ariane Simone, co-founder and investor of the Fearless Fund, which invests in Black women-led businesses all over the country. So tell me about um, this world that you're in. I think a lot of Black women are out there. They're interested. Maybe they're not, they're not quite getting the support that they need. Um, how can Black women just support one another in this space? How can we help you know, people get their businesses and their VCs and everything off the ground? Whew. That's a loaded question. No, I'm going to tell you why. Yeah. And I do think it's very important that we as African-American women do stick together. There's first of all, there's an education gap, I will say, yeah. in the space of venture education and investment education in our community as a whole. Yes. Um, so once Keisha and I got on this whole journey, we noticed that. We were, yeah. Even when we would sit with high wealth individuals, we were like, whoa, why do we have to spend a whole hour educating before we even get into what we're doing? Mm-hmm. So I will definitely say the education piece is definitely one factor that needs to increase. And I plan on doing a lot more of that in 2020. In addition to that, um, for those who are in the space, yeah, it's very important that we stick together because we make up less than a percent of the venture capital industry. Not even just on the investment side, on the investor side. We need more African-American female investors in order to have more African-American female investments. Yes. So, say it loud. <laughs> say 80% white male yes. um, currently that are investors in the industry, 2% African American, and of that, that are females or less than that. But if we, we can't expect for more diverse investments if we're not on the other side of the table, which is yeah. why we got on the other side of the table to help solve this problem and move the needle. Yeah. Um, but what I can say for those who are in the space and they are looking to get in the space, please can even feel free to email us. Like, yeah. Please connect. It's so important that we stick together on this. So many other communities, all of our counterparts do this collectively. Yes, they do. And for those of us that are in a position to, we need to come together. Yes. The wealth gap right now is honestly for the black family in a state of emergency. Yeah. We are at a net worth of 17000 which is about 13 times less than our Caucasian counterparts. And we need to address all of this. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's yeah. Like, that's definitely. And, that's and honestly, right now. And honestly, it's due to just the lack of collective, to be yeah. truthful with you. Okay. Um, and this is nothing to say anything against the Hispanic audience by any means. I love all my Hispanic brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. but their net worth now keeps rising even above ours. And I said, part of this is with um, they believe in the collective. And 
you can even look at the fact that they have a language barrier, <laughs> but yet it's still progressive. Their yes. numbers are going up as far as less of them are becoming unbanked, more of them are acquiring more wealth. Yes. And yeah, so yeah. We, we have no choice but to stick together. I know in the Jewish community, them dollars, they have an yeah, 18 yeah. hand rule. It yes. has to pass 18, 18 hands. hands before, yeah. And ours is leaving in six seconds. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the different industries that you know entrepreneurs touch. Um, what industries do you kind of desire for more black women to be involved in? Well, the number one, of course, is going to be tech. Of <laughs> I, don't, I just, just want to hear you say it. Well, I the reason why, say when I, I was even stating the wealth gap earlier, um, part of that is due to the fact that tech is now the most or the largest wealth producing industry. Yes. And with that being said, if we have to be involved in the largest wealth producing industry, we want to be a part of that wealth. Yes. Amen. So. You can do like I'm doing. You can be on the investor side of it, or you need to be on the product creation side of it. And, I mean, history has proven that African Americans, we are the inventors. Yeah. Say it again. We are the inventors. We are the inventors. So yes. it's just about taking your rightful place. Yeah, and we have to own what we invent. Yes. Yes. Um, lastly, what do you hope the state of black female entrepreneurs and venture capitalism looks like, what's your vision for it five to 10 years from now? In five to 10 years, my vision for what this looks like for African-Americans in the venture capital space is honestly for the numbers to improve. I will know that everybody is doing our parts. Really, it's all about everybody just doing your part. Okay. You know, on the big scale of things, the size of our funds are considered, you know, it's somewhat small, but mm -hmm. it's not about the size. Like, I have to do my part. Yes. So if everybody just does their part, then we will see the needle move. We yes. will see the percentages move. And in five to ten years, it will be my joy to look up and be like, oh, my gosh, we have increased this by 10%. Like, look at this, you guys. Yeah. Look at where our community is. Look at how many more people are invested. Look at how many more companies are employing more people. Look at the economic development yes. and the social responsibility that we've just taken on. Yeah. So that will just warm my heart. <laughs> you are warming my heart right now. Sound advice and a hopeful look toward the future of Black female entrepreneurship. Ariane is not the only Black woman out here who's determined to put some points on the board for Black women. Many of you already know the name Arlen Hamilton, but for those who don't, Arlen is a force within the venture capital space. She created Backstage Capital, where she helps to fund some of the best and brightest founders. Her story as a Black woman investor is just so inspiring. But during our conversation, she revealed just how vast the disparity is between how long it can take her to raise money and how long it typically takes for a white male investor to do the same. But make no mistake, Arlen is not complaining. She keeps her nose to the grindstone. Check it out. What will make you feel like you made it? Um, when I'm turning down capital rather than walking towards it. Yeah. Because that will happen. I know that will happen as clear as I knew that we would invest in 100 companies by 2020 and then we ended up investing in by 2018. Yeah. I knew that would happen as clear as I knew that black women uh, deserve more than the crumbs mm -hmm. and when it came to investment. So I know that um, in a certain time period, which I believe will be by the end of 2020, that we will be in a position where we are no longer accepting capital from people who weren't already there. Yeah. And it'll be because of a few things that have, you know, played out yep. with our traction, with our uh, reputation and with the ecosystem at large. 
And we're not there yet because we still have to, um, it's not like, you know, venture funds have to raise constantly. That's mm-hmm. just the business of it. That's it's the not, model. It's endless. Yeah. It's, so it's yeah. not like I'm saying we'll just be, <laughs> we'll be, we don't have to work. That's yeah. not making it to me. The, there is a, the, the, what we're in, the position that we're in right now is that we have to work 10 times as hard for every penny, mm. just like our founders. We, it, it took me uh, 16 months to raise $1.2 million from the, t- from the, it took me four years to raise that. Yeah. But from the, from the I, first I check of 25,000 in September, 2015 to reaching 1.2 million in December, 2016, that was a, a 16 month period. Mm-hmm. I have raised 1.2 million in the last month. Okay. So it changed, you know, it changes. I don't think you saw, our, I don't know if you saw <laughs> our producer, <laughs> Claudia Lopez, sitting here, her eyes just like lit up. <laughs> and, and I was trying to contain myself too. But, I, I mean, but I, still, I, yeah. I am absolutely not saying that as a mic drop because, yeah. because honestly, think about, it's like when you think about your rate, if you're a consultant, you think about your rate and people might say, well, why is your rate so high? Your rate isn't well, because of the 60 minutes that you're giving to a client. It's for the 60 months right. of training that you just the did. Expertise. So my point is to get to the point now where I have been able to to kind of change that time period of what I raise. It's still crumbs because while i was raising 1.2 in the last month my white male counterpart was raising 12 or 120 yeah you see so i'm going to recognize i'm not going to play this card of like woe is me i'm going Mm -hmm. to recognize that it has gotten better for me because i've made it so which is i've worked for that and so i understand okay in a year and a half it'll be a different story just because i've been able to Again, I'm an, I'm an observer, so I'm watching it while it's happening to me. I'm understanding, and I and I think that a lot of that has to do with just the 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 incredible work that the backstage team does on yeah. a day to day basis. Okay, we've looked at how Black women can move the needle for equality at various stages of their career and on the investor side, but we have yet to discuss the actual data, the statistical proof that shows women should be leading your company, period. Who is a better example than Dia Sims? Dia is the CEO of the Byrne Group, spelled B-R-N, and she's the former executive of Sean Combs's, AKA Diddy's, Wine and Spirits, who led the growth of over 1,000% in sales, and she put Ciroc on the map as one of the top vodka brands. Dia's got an incredible story of how it all happened and why men should let women lead. Take a listen. And I know that you, when you took your first role there, it was an EA job? Yes, executive but assistant. But you wanted a chief of staff position. Well, I was interviewed for a chief of staff role. Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, they ca- he called me back and said, look, we'd like to hire you, but you have not managed like really large teams before. Would you be willing to come on as executive assistant? Okay. Um, and I, I often say this, but this is what I said at the time. I was like, I don't 
you can call me the janitor. Like, there's how much money I need to make, yeah. and I'll be there tomorrow, kind of thing. Do you and, mind me uh, asking, at that stage in your life, how much money did you need to make? I needed to make like $100,000. That's what I was making in sales. Got it. So, yeah. Okay. Um, which is good, which is a, because I was, the difference was, I was actually making a little bit more in radio. Okay. Like about that price year, I had to make like about 130000 Okay. But it's radio. It's radio. So I was so like, you. every day I'm hustling. <laughs> so I was like, oh, wait a sleep. minute. Yes. I was like, this is like a steady job. Yes. Are we get a salary? I was like, yes, sign me up. I was like, <laughs> Um, And I also felt like, I'm cool, sometimes you, even if you view it this way, but sometimes, you know, I think you got to be willing to take like a a step back to take a step forward. Mm -hmm. I was like, look, this is a guy who I can learn from, and I'm, all my life is about like in the pursuit of like, how how much can I learn? Who can I learn from? Um, And for me, that was actually invaluable. Have you gotten a lot of outside support from other, from other men in the business? Has it been difficult? Do you have any um, like any mentor experiences? I, I would say this. So for me, it's actually been extraordinary. Um, and I'm just a, I'm a big believer though in like how much can you overgive, right? Mm-hmm. Because it comes back in such spades. So if there's any small thing that I could do to be helpful. In my experience, just almost, you know, not to be a woo, but karma-wise, like, it comes back in spades. I, I love a woo, mama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm here for it, so. Yeah. And it's just a real, it's a real thing, right? You yeah, know, the old okay. school, like, you walk in a room and somebody had an argument beforehand. You didn't have to know. You can, like, feel in the air. Yes. It's a real thing in terms of, like, if you legit, like, from your heart are going out, like, how, you know what I mean? Like, what can I, what can I do to make things better for the people I'm around? Like, yeah. that's... You know what I mean? To me, that's where I've actually operated. And for me, I've gotten that back. I've gotten that back so much, I could live another five lives and couldn't repay it. You know what I mean? I think Puff, specifically, I would call out because we do have experiences where I'm going to meetings and he is being like, this is, this is the president of Combs Enterprises. And, and they will be like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's sweet. And I'm sorry, Puffin. And, and then he, ha- he has been a wonderful advocate and said, like, no, 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 no I'm sorry, I don't know if you heard me. Like, he's like, I don't even know the answer to that question. If you want to know this, you're going to talk. Talk. You're gonna need to talk to her. Yeah. And I think, um, look, women's rights are not going to improve without the advocacy of men. Um, and frankly, I think he's been a shining example that doesn't get the credit for it way before... Um, way before it was kind of in fashion, right? Or, yeah. or felt forced. In the past few years, all of us probably got yeah. more calls from recruiters. But <laughs> in the early days, uh, I want to say maybe like around 2008, I went to the CFO at the time and actually asked to do like a backwards analysis of like when you had women in leadership versus when you had men in leadership and to show how much more profitable he was. And I went and it wasn't a surprise to me to show like make more money when women are in charge. Wow. By the way, there's like another hundred studies that keep underscoring this point for anybody listening that runs a company. You put women in charge, you make more money. It's just good wow. for your shareholders. And I think he took it to heart. And, you know, during the time I've been there, we've had a CEO of television network, or, you know, his, he's had many other chief of staffs who were women, the uh, CMO at his water was a woman. We've had at any given time between 40 and 60% across his executive team of female leadership. And if you look at Puff and you think of him as a success yep. of American entrepreneurship, he absolutely is a creative visionary, but what he's smart about is getting the best people to build the businesses behind him. Yes. And they're usually women. Wow. As you can tell, equal pay for black women is about much more than what we earn from our paychecks. We are the glue. We're shapers and influencers, and just like Dia said, women in positions of power are good for business. I'm so thankful for these women and their stories that reflect the grit, tenacity, and pay-me-what-you-owe-me spirit that we need in order to excel and to thrive in the workplace and beyond. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll catch you next week, and remember, you have the power to be unbossed. 
Be sure to listen, download, or subscribe to more episodes of Unbossed. You can find Unbossed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple listeners, please be sure to leave me a review and let me know what you think. Be kind, but be critical. That's okay, too. Don't forget to hit me up on social at Marquita underscore Harris underscore. Be sure to use the hashtag Unbossed Podcast. Appreciate you. Thanks, guys.